Welcome to the Dealmakers Coffee Break, where we talk to industry pros about their success stories, deals, and market insights in just enough time for you to enjoy a cup of coffee. So grab your mug and join us for a chat with the people behind the deals. I'm Asaf Raz. Let's go. So welcome to another episode of the Dealmakers Coffee Break Edition. And today I have the partner and chief investment officer of Railfield, John Siegel. John Siegel has vast history in real estate. It's been since 1992, which is literally when I was born. So a lot of respect for that. Without further ado, please take it away, John. Tell us about yourself, what you're doing today, what you're focused on, and we'll take it from there. Great. Yeah. Now you make, you make me feel old now. I would say people, I would say I've been, uh, I've been in, in real estate longer than I care to admit, but you just spoiled my secret. So yeah, so I've been in primarily multifamily for a long time now, over 30 years. And I've been on both sides of the table. I actually originally worked for a company that was the largest owner of apartments and largest manager of apartments in the country back in the 90s called NHB. And there I did acquisitions. And I would say they were sort of, I don't know if they were dumb enough or not well run enough to give a guy that was in his 20s uh, a lot of latitude to do a lot of deals. So they sort of, yeah, I was supposed to be sort of an analyst when I started and I was willing to stay up all night and travel all the time and everything. And it ended up, I was doing you know, multiple thousands of units deals as the business guy pretty quickly. And so it was great experience. I guess I can say I made, made some mistakes with, with other people's money as they tell you to do. That company though, actually, interestingly, was a public company. It was actually owned by the endowment of Harvard University. And then they wanted to monetize their investment. So they took the company public and then they said they wanted to buy a REIT to merge into it. And so that was one of my assignments. We were working on buying a REIT and we had some investment bankers and there was going to be a meeting between the, the head of our company and the head of the REIT and the guys from Harvard. And so it was above my pay grade. So the next morning, they had the meeting the next morning. I go into the CEO. I say, how was the meeting? And he says, slight change of plans. They're buying us. We're not buying them. So that was the end of my time there. These are the acquisitions guys, the first to go. Transitioned pretty seamlessly though to becoming a lender. And so I started working at Fannie Mae. And so Fannie, obviously, back then was by far the largest now, Freddie and Fannie are, I guess, not the same size, but was the largest, you know, lender in, in the multifamily space. And at Fannie, I did two things, which is I did what they call the structured transactions. So when a big, when a REED or a big organization does deal with Fannie, you know, if you do a one off loan with Fannie Mae, you do it through your lender and nobody ever talks to Fannie Mae or knows who anybody is. But when you borrow, you know, a couple hundred million dollars or, or or more, you know, Fannie gets involved and somebody in Fannie has to do the deal. And then that was my job. And so we did everything from, you know, hundred million dollar credit facility for somebody to the biggest deal we did was the privatization of the Archstone REIT, which was an $8 billion deal. And I also started and ran Fannie Mae Student Housing. When I got there, Fannie did not lend. They would not. It was like a bright line would not lend on student housing. And I was dumb enough to ask the question, why wouldn't we lend on student housing? And they were like, that is too risky. I was like, really? I don't think it's that risky. So they were like, well, tell us why it's not, you know, make a proposal. So I wrote up a memo and lo and behold, uh, they were like, okay, we'll start laying on student housing and you can be in charge of it. And I was like, mm, I already have a full-time job. So I, I, uh, I was there at the beginning of that, but you know, I worked for two big companies and had the entrepreneur, always had the entrepreneurial itch. And I had done some deals on the side, you know, buying smaller multifamily. And I think it was the worst kept secret of training me. Everybody knew what I was doing it. Well, one day, one of the guys who's one of my partners now came to me and said, you know, what you're doing, I'd like to do. Maybe we could do it together. And that became a, a genesis of us 
leaving Fannie Mae and trying to start doing this on our own, which we did during the great financial crisis, which was probably not the best timing. It depends on yeah. who you're asking, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I guess in retrospect, it was a good time. But you know, we, we, we sort of kept the lights on by doing a ton of advisory work. People came back and, and hired us to do all kinds of deals for them as we were trying to raise money and, fi- and figure things out. And the guy that ran multifamily at Fannie Mae when I worked there is a guy by the name of Ken Bajan. And Ken left Fannie a couple of years after we did. And he was trying to figure out what to do next. And he was on the board of a company called Artemis Real Estate Partners, which is a big mm-hmm. investor. And his pay for being on the board, Artemis, I think it started recently, they gave him an office. So he was sitting there and Artemis had gotten the assignment to run the what they call the Emerging Manager Program for New York Common, so the big pension fund from New York. And they have, yeah, I would say New York Common has like, you know, a trillion dollars and there's like eight people work there. So they, you know, they want to put out money in smaller chunks and with smaller companies. And so they hired Artemis to run this program. And so they were trying to put the money on. I think they were getting pressure from New York Common to actually do something with a small company or a startup. They said, maybe do a startup. So one day they called across the hall to Ken and said, hey, you ever think of starting a multifamily company? He's like, I don't know. I don't really want to raise money. That's kind of a pain. And they're like, we don't have to raise money because we have money. And so Ken, who is, as we follow our designated big shot, he's not going to do a model or write a memo or something like that. So he called Todd and I and said, hey, you guys want to start a multifamily company? We're like, that's what we're trying to do. And so that was the beginning of Railfield, which is my company now. And so we have three partners. And as I say, we started on third base with money from a pension fund. And we kind of naively thought that this pension fund, you know, we'd, we'd spend the money from this JV and then we'd just get more pension fund money and that would be it. And we'd grow and we'd be, you know, enormous. And so we bought our first couple of properties. They told us they wanted us to focus on Texas since we bought our first couple of properties in San Antonio. And we spent the money they gave us really. And then it turned out that other pension funds weren't really that interested in investing with three guys sitting in a room to have a couple of deals in San Antonio. You know, pension funds are looking for people that are well-established with a track record. So we had to pivot and we ended up forming some other capital relationships. And, you know, long story short, and I can give you a lot of detail about what Realfield does, but long story short, you know, fast forward nine years later, we were in nine markets, major markets of, of Texas, along with the Mid-Atlantic and Southeast. And we focus on value-add, Encore Plus and Affordable. So the full spectrum of, of multifamily. And we have a number of institutional and family office capital relationships. That's a big history story. I feel like you've gone through so much. And yet there is something that popped to my mind while you were speaking about multifamily. So yeah. if we look at when you started doing what we call multifamily, right? It was yeah. what, 1992, was the first yeah. time that you started working on multifamily. And I feel like the past maybe couple of years, maybe three to four years, there's been a real change in multifamily. It became what we what, what I love calling a real estate trend, right? Where people say yeah. multifamily, multifamily, just you know, raise capital and then you can buy a, a property. What changed? What changed? What made multifamily such a spoken of asset type or asset class when compared to historically what it was? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a good it's a good question because when I started in this business, right, a lot of yeah, a lot of people didn't want to do multifamily. It was sort of mm-hmm. a sort of a second tier asset class, and a lot of big institutional investors they had like no beds. That was their theory. Right. They wanted to do office. You know, over the years, it has become much more institutionalized, both you know in terms of companies that are involved in it, but also the access to capital. And so, what changed originally was. You know, the, what I guess we call the securitization of multifamily, which is REITs first started putting a lot more institutional capital into the market. And then the 
access to debt changed a lot with Freddie and Fan really becoming bigger players, which happens, you know, around the year 2000 or so. There became such an access to capital that it became easier to do multifamily and the cost of capital. You fast forward along to what the, what happened was demographics changed, right? And so I'm old now, I'm part of Generation X, which was like the baby bust. And then all of a sudden, yeah. millennials and, and Gen Z, which are a ton of people. And mm-hmm. people tend to rent apartments when they're in their 20s, you know? And so, so the demographics caught up to the institutionalized nature of the business. And then you fast forward then to, you know, the 2010s, you know, as we move towards 2020. And what happened was the market grew and then the money got really cheap, right? And so money mm-hmm. is cheap. It seems easier to make deals work. And then the values went up. And so, you know, people who had invested back in 2013, 2014, or, or before that, you know, they made a ton of cash because all of the, the values mm-hmm. went up. And there became so much liquidity in the market. And, you know, money follows money. And so as there's so much liquidity, everybody sees it, wants to get into it. And we had this big run up, which, you know, coincided with the end of cheap money, maybe, and I don't know, maybe it's historically really not that expensive, but comparatively cheap money. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been to IMN? I was there back in uh, IMN Dallas. And I feel like I've, I've talked about this in a few episodes because I have a few people from Texas, but yep. what I saw was I was, I was sleeping maybe 15 minutes walk, 10 to 15 minute walk from, from the venue. And I said, I'm going to yeah. walk. And they started walking and it was a bunch of scattered buildings, uh, you know, six, seven stories buildings. And as I walked to the venue, the landscape changed on me. So you'd, you'd see a bunch of multifamilies, you'd see a bunch of yeah. residential areas all of a sudden with, you know, with, with the gardens and, and yeah. they, they look much better and they look much, much more renovated. I feel like this, it's not only, like you said, it's not only a trend, it's population change and people are yeah, expected sure. to live in better locations. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's double between, and in Dallas, between the general trends in the world of people, well, you know, maybe pre-COVID, people want to live more and see, you know, there's a big move into cities or sort of city-like locations, you know, in suburbs, making all the town centers and all that. And then you have the explosive growth in the Sun Belt, you know, places like Dallas and Austin and Brown Durham and Nashville, all these markets. So many people move there and there's so much business created there. It all just blew up, but now, you know, now we're all standing here, you know, in the end of June of, of 2023, you know, wondering, okay, what, what happens what happens next? And and let's let's talk about that for a bit. What are we doing currently? You people, some people are treating the current situation. They call it the downturn. Some people call it a crisis. Others say it's a natural progression of our real estate work. You've been here. You've done that before. You've seen yeah. 08. You've seen you've seen the 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 bubble burst, right? Yeah. How are you treating the current situation when it comes to your strategy with Real Field today? How does that change what you've done before, or uh, what are you going to do in the future? You know, I guess that's the one of the benefits of gray hair is I guess you've seen, although it's different every time, but yeah, you've, you've, you've seen this movie a little bit before. I, I don't, you know, I don't view this as like a crisis or, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, I think, you know, interest rates went up. Look, interest rates were really low and now they're probably back to historical levels. And I know that that makes it difficult, you know, for everybody, for, for us included. You know, we tend to be pretty conservative. We're, you know, we have lending backgrounds. And so we tend to always have focused on you know cash flow and being relatively conservative in the way we approached acquisitions, which you know got a little frustrating to be honest with you during you know twenty twenty one say when everybody's buying everything and you know we're like getting we're getting outbid on everything, but we we sort of maintain our discipline and so we have only fixed rate debt. We never we never did a, a debt fund loan, and mm-hmm. you know we just keep doing what we're doing, which which I equate right now to sort of banging your head against the wall uh, because. Yeah, the, the the pricing is is tough 
tough to make it work. But I think what we're going to see here over the next year or so, again, this will sound like an, this is an old guy saying this now, is that when I talk to everybody in the market, you know, yourself included, which is most people got into this during this last, I don't even know if the cycle's over, but you know, during this cycle, say, let's say during the cycle, most everybody who's in this business who we talked to, you know, if they got in, even if you got into it, you've been doing this for 10 years, which is a pretty long time. You know, you've gotten into it during this cycle. So you haven't seen this before. Most people figure it out. And I think the people that can figure it out and, and have staying power and make it to the next cycle, those are the people that are going to be successful, right? There are going to be some people that are going to have some problems. But I think most, you know, most people will will make it through. And, and you know, I think a lot of the dire predictions are sometimes overblown. Same, same thing like with the office market where like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. nobody will ever go to an office again. Like, that's not going to happen. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. things have changed. But yeah, it, the office market isn't ruined forever. Yeah, it's just different. And so this is different, and we just got to figure out how to how to navigate this different world the way we navigated, which is a long way to wind up to, your, to answer your question. Is we just keep doing what we do, which is we just yeah you know, we underwrite relatively conservatively, we stick to our pricing, we stick to our discipline, and you know we don't win as many deals, but you know we just closed the deal last week. We're still buying stuff, we're still out there looking. Maybe it'll be a little slower for a little bit of time, but you probably be rewarded, especially. The one thing I would also say is you will never know when it changes if you're not on the market. So you guys say mm-hmm. Yesterday I had a call with Rich Bachner. He's from Alpha Investments. I don't know if you know him. And Rich told me a sentence. He said that the only problem with invest- investing in, it doesn't matter what the asset class is, is to say now the time is different, right? Yeah. The time is never really different. It's right. like uh, he said, like if you invested in an Apple stock and it went down, what would you do if you believe in Apple? You need to right. double your investment. So what would you do if you believe in an asset, right? Yeah. So you would down on the asset. So th- it does make a lot of sense in terms of how the market is looking right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, seeing, you know, the, the long-term view, I think, of multifamily is very positive. There's still, the demographics are still good. There's still a lot of demand. There's still a shortage of housing in the United States. So people need housing. Maybe everybody doesn't need a brand new apartment right now, but every, there's still a huge demand. And there's a lot of new construction now, but it'll be gone soon because nobody can get money to do a construction loan now. So, you know, this is a, sh- that's a short-term situation. So mm. long-term, I think I'm super bullish on it. We have, you know, we have a property that we bought that is doing well, but you know, it's sort of bouncing along a little bit. And I'm like, look, we bought the deal with a 10 year time horizon in 10 years. Everything will be great. Yeah, exactly. Time, it, it's true. You know, the benefit of time heals many wounds in, in, in this business. I love that. I love that. So as we talked about this in the beginning about multifamily and how it became some sort of also a trend to people yeah. that really didn't know. And they, they, as you said, they came into the market in the last 10 to 14 years. They had this yeah. run and, you know, interest rates are practically zero, right? Yep. yep. Many players went to the space. How did that or does that influence today what you're doing with Railfield and how you either choose or find new assets, how you raise capital? Has that changed anything in what you do? Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, so, it, sort of. I guess the answer is yeah, sure. Like, so when we raise money, you know, we we play up how experienced we are. You know, we've been, in the, we've seen multiple cycles. So, you know, that, that's marketing for us, right? Because we're, you know, we're just, again, we just haven't have been around long. Mm-hmm. So we can say, you know, we we we've done that. You know, in the way that we look at deals, there's two things on that. One, which is, you know, we see where the pressure points are. So we're careful about those because, you know, with the big run up there, there definitely are some pressure points. And and I think a lot of people feel like because so many people got into it and some of them were not experienced, they're probably 
maybe some opportunities in terms of, I, I don't know that there'll really be distressed deals, but there'll be some deals that will have to sell. So I think, you know, we, we're, we're, we're on the lookout for that. I mean, so is everybody else. And yeah, I like to say right now, everybody is, is either giving or getting preferred equity. And, you know, we tend to focus primarily on buying properties, but we did a couple of preferred equity deals last year because the opportunities presented themselves. So mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're sort of working around, you know, see, seeing where the opportunities are and just understanding, you know, where that fits in with our strategy. But again, we tend to be relatively conservative and sort of, you know, stick to our basic, you know, our basic strategy that we've had for nine plus years. Do you see that this is becoming a, um, you know, when, when this all started, when interest rates started slowly going up, yeah. people were talking about the change from a seller's market to a buyer's yeah. market, right? Yeah. Where it's easier for you. Brokers all of a sudden reach out and say, hey, I have a new property. Are you feeling that change? Are you feeling more and more assets being put into the market? Or do you feel like it's just a, a t- tug war game between asset owners and people that are, want yeah. to invest in assets? Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely fewer fewer assets being sold right now and on the market. I mean, I think the stats are out there, you know, 70% decline and all of that. So I, there definitely are fewer assets and our pipeline is not as big as it was two years ago when we had, you know, three pages of deals that we we're looking at. But I think a lot of the people uh, out there now, I think if you're, if you have experience and, and you, so, you know, you say it's a seller's market versus a buyer's market. I think, you know, it certainly was a seller's market two years ago. Two years ago, we were, we did eight deals or whatever, you know, we, mm-hmm. On the contracts, you know, we we're like, well, we have no leverage here. We'll just, you know, whatever they tell us. And 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 today, you know, you can push back a little bit more. So it is. But if you want to buy deals, there, you know, for deals that are realistically priced and that are, you know, solid deals, there's still a number of buyers out there. And so we still act the same way that we did before. You know, our big thing is we try to act. We try to say, you know, we do what we say we're going to do and do it, and we try to move fast and have no surprises and all that. And we still act like that. So. Maybe it was a seller's market. I don't know that it's a hundred percent a buyer's market right now. I think if somebody had, you know, if you have a property today and you have to sell it and you're realistic about what the price is, you'll get some buyers for it. But you know, sure, certainly the balance of power changed. And I think that the brokers, who obviously the gatekeepers all out of these deals, are a little more, a little nicer when you when you give them a call, right? Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They have calls back, right, right. All of a sudden, we have like, you know, since we're in nine markets, we're we're based in the D.C. area, so mm-hmm. like, you know, we do deals in Texas. All of a sudden, we start to have. We I, I, we were just talking about it. some guys are coming in tomorrow. We have all of a sudden a lot of brokers are calling and say, "Hey, we're going to be in town. Can we come by?" I was like, "We're coming by two years ago. Now they're all they're all coming by." So I guess the, I guess that's good for us. That's amazing. So we have to keep the what I call the twenty minute rule, which is so the episodes are more digestible. But at the end of every every episode, we have what I call a shameless plug, which means that you can shamelessly talk about yourself, Railfield new opportunities that you have, anything that you're looking for right now as we share this with our audience and, you know, things happen through our network. So you'll never know. Yeah, you know, I, I always tell people when I meet with them that, uh, you yeah, know, so, so real feel is that we're, we're based here in, in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, we focus on the mid-Atlantic Southeast in Texas primarily. We buy multifamily. We have actually three joint venture funds focusing between 60 and 120% of area median income. So that's basically, you know, from affordable to sort of core, core plus. Mm-hmm. So we, we sort of invest across the spectrum. And I would say we're looking for two, we're always looking for two things, which are deals and money. If you have a deal you want to sell, please talk to us. We, we move fast. And we're always looking to meet new capital relationships and talk to people about investing, you know, a good track record and a lot of experience. So we never have enough of deals or money. So that we always have time to talk to somebody about. That's, that's pretty much what we're looking for. That's great. That's great. 
Yeah. John Siegel, thank you so much for joining me on uh, another episode of the Dealmakers Coffee Break. I really appreciate you coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. Check out more episodes on the Dealmakers podcast available on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, and Agora's website at agorareal.com slash podcast. See you in the next episode.